Well, I'd like to welcome all of you joining us today uh, live uh, in January, our first High Performer webinar. And for those of you that are joining us online and through our podcast, we're delighted to have you with us. Uh, my name is Charles Denham, and uh, I'll be your host today. Uh, we're going to address a second part of the five rights of identity and really talk about how it can really have an impact on your life, whether your uh, medical identity or personal identity uh, is uh, stolen, accessed, and especially one of the things that is really uh, a concern to us is uh, the impact on our kids, which is uh, just really uh, 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 an anxiety-producing and a terrible event that can happen and actually can end in death. And so uh, we'll show a short video now just to introduce that concept. It turned out of the death of a high school football player whose family says he was driven to take his own life after falling victim to a social media sextortion scam. Well, Reeve has that story. Good morning, Will. Hey, good morning, George. It's unfathomable. A teenager driven to suicide by a pernicious and pervasive scam. Now the teen's parents are speaking out about their tragedy. Overnight, the parents of a Michigan teenager speaking out about a growing social media scam they said led to the death of their 17-year-old son. Three people from across the world came into my house that night while I was sleeping and murdered Jordan. And I had zero chance to stop it. John DeMay and Jennifer Buta opening up about so-called sextortion scams, which trick teens into sending explicit photos of themselves online only to be blackmailed. Their son Jordan becoming a victim of the scheme, later taking his own life. Jordan was this outgoing young man he had a smile that was contagious. He loved playing sports. And he was handsome. He was popular. He was the prom king. The beloved high school football player was scammed into sending explicit photos of himself to who he thought was a teenage girl on Instagram. But prosecutors allege he was actually speaking to Samuel Agashi, a grown man from Nigeria, pretending to be a young woman to produce a sexually explicit image of Jordan, with the intention of using the image to blackmail him. He drained his bank accounts as much as he could. On March 25th, 2022, prosecutors say Agashi demanded $1,000 from the team, writing under the fake account, Danny Roberts. I have screenshot all your followers and tags can send this nudes to everyone. All you've to do is cooperate with me and I won't expose you. He's believing that all these images are going to his friends' mothers and his friends, and it, it just threw him into a tailspin. Two hours after the initial threat, Jordan wrote, I'm kill myself right now because of you. The scammer's response, good, do that fast or I'll make you do it. Moments later, Jordan died by suicide. Last year, the FBI said there were roughly 7,000 reports of sextortion online, resulting in more than a dozen suicides. Authorities stressing that while any child could be targeted, 14 to 17 year old boys are most often victimized. Now, Jordan's parents are helping other families know of the potential dangers about what children are exposed to online and how to prevent it from happening. Having open conversations about the dangers of social media in general and specifically sextortion. Let your kids know if it does happen, go to a trusted adult and let them know that this is happening and get their help. Meta said in a statement, quote, no family should ever have to experience a tragedy like this 
We want teens to have a safe experience on our apps, and we've built safeguards and technology to help combat any dangerous activity. We encourage all teens to report potentially harmful content or accounts in our apps if they feel unsafe. They went on to tout a tool for users to regain control of their pictures. That's called Take It Down. So this is a critical issue. It's a critical issue for all of us that are parents. It's a public health issue. And for those of us in patient safety and quality, and we've expanded our focus now at, at TMIT through our national research testbed of 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities to focus on not only the narrow bandwidth issues of patient safety and quality that we know are critically important, but actually expanding to some of these public health issues. Um, one critical um, issue is, and for those of you that are joining us at part two of consent and of uh, the five rights of consent, uh, we covered last month, and I highly recommend you watch our video, that children and seniors are really being targeted, and children and youth are being targeted to get their social security number, their medical records, their medical identification. And so identity theft, scamming, cyber extortion, being money mules, unknowingly moving money stolen from fraud victims to launder it, and cyberbullying are all critical public health issues uh, representing an enormous uh, amount of harm, death, and uh, impact on lives. And so we're taking a deeper dive today. And for those of you that are joining us for the first time, highly recommend that you go back to listen to our first episode, however, on this topic. However, we will be covering the principles. In our last part, which was part one, the five rights of identity, we covered Frankenstein fraud, which is the synthetic development of an identity. What, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that that fraudsters are actually taking your social security number, may take my medical record number at an institution, may take uh, our support team in Austin who's supporting this webinar today and getting their medical insurance number, creating a, a synthetic identity and even uh, getting loans, getting uh, medical care uh, and having an enormous uh, impact. In fact, synthetic fraud has been identified as a major issue whereby they will create five or six synthetic identities then make them part of an employee base of a company, and then the company defrauds others. Uh, we also watched a video, which we won't show today, um, of an investigative reporter that took two brand new phones, drove around Washington, D.C. One was on, and neither of them had SIM cards. Uh, one was on airplane mode, one was not, um, and then plugged in an interface to see what was being uploaded to Google, uh, and virtually the, the entire identity of the locations and the itinerary of that reporter uh, was, was followed. So there's an enormous amount of data that's being um, aggregated on each one of us and critical to understand that. And so uh, the video I highly recommend that you watch is called Big Brothers Watching. It's a short video, but it will actually um, give you a chilling, uh, chilling feel for what's going on. So that was our first part. We're covering second part today. For those of you that uh, are 
on the podcast. If you wish to watch the videos and you wish to download the slides, you can go to safetyleaders.org, www.safetyleaders.org today and between now and our next webinar. And you can click on uh, the upper right-hand quadrant of the website, which will take you to where you can download um, a transcript. You can uh, download the slides and watch the video. Um, However, uh, for those of you uh, that are watching and listening long-term, you can go to uh, our uh, file folder uh, on on the top of the page and pick prior webinars, and you'll be able to uh, get those. And for those of you that are today watching and don't have the slides, you can get them that way. So just a quick bio bio background for you. Um, We are delivering continuing medical and continuing nursing education uh, assets and resources through what we call Care University. It's not a formal university. It's our learning management system, very much like so many companies now have their own uh, learning platform. Uh, However, our method is one where we develop communities of practice. So you've participating today in our community of practice uh, with um, our uh, high performer program. And what we do is then develop course R&D to identify the potential impact that we can have through uh, education, best practices, best best methods from subject matter experts. And then it frequently we develop a competency test for the R&D that allows us to uh, accredit people with uh, certifications and create incentives for them. And we often partner with a number of organizations, American Heart Association, the American College of Surgeons, and a whole host of other organizations uh, because we're not in the business of selling certifications. And so uh, what we do is we work with those those organizations and we're um, instructors with those organizations, but our goal is to provide everything that we provide to you free uh, so that you can have that uh, and don't have to pay for it. Uh, our emerging threat speakers and reactors over the end of 2023 and now 2024 include Jennifer Dingman, who you'll hear from in just a moment, who is our patient advocate and voice of the patient, Vicki King, who is the former assistant police chief in Houston, Texas, a former assistant police chief at the University of Texas Health Science Center and MD Anderson, um, John Nance, who is uh, a widely uh, a, a widely published uh, uh, best uh, uh, best uh, 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 book uh, 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 author and is one of our leading uh, patient safety and aviation safety experts uh, uh, in the world, who's not only a JD, a former uh, captain with a major airlines and a former colonel in the, uh, in the Air Force. Today, we have Randy Steiner live. Randy is the assistant, or Randy is the director of uh, the University of California, Irvine, uh, uh, emergency response. So he's the director of that program. Uh, he wor- works with us in a number of capacities with our MedTech program focused on bystander rescue care, and he'll help us uh, uh, with uh, some discussion. Dr. Gladstone McDowell is board certified in four specialties. He brings to us uh, much help in the area of pain management and opioid overdoses. Um, you will hear from Chief Adcox, who is the Chief, uh, Chief Security Officer and the um, Chief of Police of the University of Texas Health Science Center. He's also a Vice President, uh, Executive Vice President at MD Anderson. And Dr. Boats, with our extended session, you'll hear from Dr. Boats who is uh, both a full professor at the University of Texas, uh, MD Anderson, 
and an adjunct full prof clinical professor at Stanford Medical Center, and uh, I am going to be your host. We've had, had a series of workplace violence and fraud uh, programs uh, over the, uh, the 2023 focused on workplace harm, and those are the speakers that uh, that, that you will uh, hear from there. So we never start our formal uh, program without hearing from the voice of the patient. We've been doing this for decades, and we're so delighted to have Jennifer Dingman. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your kind introduction. Really looking forward to today's program. This is such an important issue in this decade in our country. I want to thank everyone for being here today and encourage you to share the recording with your friends, families, and colleagues. I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. Denham. So thank you, Jenny, and thank you for uh, being uh, with us uh, at every, in every program. Jenny is the founder of Pulse, uh, focused on uh, substandard and, and errors in healthcare. More importantly, she was part of the team that worked on the healthcare-associated uh, conditions and hospital-acquired uh, conditions program that led to over 300,000 saved lives and tens of billions of dollars of savings. And it was the grassroots effort where she was a participant as uh, a team member that had that impact. And we're so blessed that we got to, to lead that and have that grassroots uh, impact that was uh, actually verified by uh, one of the former government leaders at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. She's also a published author and has been a great champion for others. Uh, for those of you that are on the podcast, we show a slide of our social media uh, addresses. And um, uh, finally, just important for us to focus on our purpose, mission, and our core values. Our purpose is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve and the ventures we undertake. And our core values are integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. They spell I care. And we work every day to live those values. And just like anyone, I'm sure we fail. Uh, however, we are doing our very best. Our disclosure statement is on slide 16. I won't go into detail, but none of the team have anything to disclose. And it's important to state that the TMIT Global High Performer uh, Webinar Series has never have and will, ne will never have any direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support ever provided by healthcare pharmaceutical or device companies. And so uh, the, the funding of, uh, of this program has been by private family philanthropy. Uh, we want to draw your attention for those first timers that over the course of the COVID crisis and then extending beyond that, that we've undertaken the actually the nation's largest study of households uh, uh, focused on the COVID response and emergency response, and we'll be reporting those results as we continue. And we focus on those. The reason we bring that up today is that this kind of reconciling framework of the five R's of uh, readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. For those of you on the podcast, we have a, a graphic we use to describe those functions, and we won't get into them in detail. However, it's critical that families be at a state of readiness. 
that they know how to respond to emergencies, that they know how to rescue someone in their family or close friends that need that rescue support, that they help support recovery, and that they constantly focus on building uh, what we would call in the military or what we would call in law enforcement, target hardening, or what's called resilience. How can we be that resilient? For those that haven't been with us before, we have uh, more than 3,100 hospitals in our network uh, in more than 3,000 communities and more than 500 subject matter experts. And the numbers of, of that is kind of leveled off because we have people retiring and new young people coming on board. And we're very, very blessed uh, to, uh, to be doing that. So let's talk about uh, the issue of workplace violence and the kind of violence that can occur uh, to both families and medical centers. And today we're talking about consent and IT issues, but it's critical that we recognize that there are insider threats and outsider threats that can that uh, we need to focus on. Many are under the waterline, and that's what led us to, to launch a program called our Emerging Threats Community of Practice. This is focused on 30 areas, 30 subject areas that are keeping our leaders up at night. We pulled our national audience of leaders uh, at these many hospitals uh, and healthcare uh, systems and public health leaders, and they helped us identify 30 different topical areas of absolute critical um, uh, uh, importance that they know are vis some are visible, some are invisible, that are challenging us uh, and that are challenging these organizations. I won't rattle them off for you, but those of you that are on the podcast, we have a graphic showing inside threats and outside threats. And our goal is really to uh, close uh, those down as much as we can to increase the safety zone. And many of them are workplace violence and many of them pertain to uh, identity fraud. And so um, we're focused today on identity fraud and a probably two thirds of these threats uh, are critical issues of cybersecurity, theft of intellectual property, insider threats that represent sabotage, employee fraud, patient fraud, uh, intentional harm to patients, conflicts of interest, academic fraud. Many, many of these uh, really are, are, are critical when we look at the IT area, the, the information technology areas of critical, that are critical. So when we look at fraud, um, they, we have focused on the past and in October of 2021, we went through all the topical areas that represent that, that are uh, fraud. And in the law, fraud is intentional deception to secure unfair or unlawful gain or to deprive a victim of a legal right. Fraud can violate civil law. It can violate, it can violate criminal law. And the perpetrator may be prosecuted and imprisoned, or it may cause no loss of money, property, or legal right, but might be the element of another civil or criminal wrong. So that's the definition. Uh, in our prior webinar on consent, the five rights of consent, we covered this concept of synthetic identity fraud. And what, what we learned by having top experts help us uh, focus on this was the incredible vulnerability that our families have through our children. Incredible vulnerability. We, we think oftentimes of 
of identity, identity fraud and someone gets your bank account and you're an adult or they get your uh, medical identity and uh, they get drugs, these things are common. But what we found is that the fraudsters have learned that children who have a clean social security number, who have a medical record number that has not been used maybe, but just uh, infrequently, that they have medical insurance policy numbers that haven't been used and that they are very, very important because they can create an entirely new identity and a credit rating. They can create a whole host of uh, challenges uh, there. So uh, I highly recommend the Javelin Strategy and Research Report. Uh, if you look at who funded it, those that are really covering a lot of the expenses related to these threats were uh, substantial sponsors. I highly recommend you download this uh, report, uh, which, are which is recent. It's November 2023. It addresses identity theft, scam, high, uh, cyber extortion, which we'll be covering uh, later uh, this morning, uh, money mule issues, cyber and cyber bullying. And um, it addresses uh, this critical issue of co the compromise of social media accounts and what's uh, absolutely uh, uh, critical. 31% of fraud victims actually were cyber bullied, uh, which is interesting, and that children um, uh, are uh, en enormous targets to the fraudsters, especially our youth, as they start to use their phones and start to get on uh, various applications and various software programs and we we never and none of us and i have a 17 year old rarely look at at what they are agreeing to to use a game or to use an app or to use a website or get a source or watch a video so it's important to recognize that cyberbullying extortion uh, is most common among higher income households not surprisingly, because they probably have more resources to be able to take advantage of things on the web. Um, and we also know that younger parents and guardians are more likely to have children victimized by ID theft. And so um, when our youth are getting phones at younger and younger ages and the adults are uh, digital natives uh, who are used to using them and haven't had a problem yet in their life, uh, are, are less likely to uh, be able to recognize that. So what we did in August of seven, August 17th of 2023, and for those on the podcast, that's a graphic entitled uh, Safety of Rising Freshmen, Battling Failure to Rescue. And we did this because we were became aware of the incredible threats and risk uh, that are rising freshmen in high school and our rising freshmen and seniors in high school that are matriculating into college have enormous, uh, enormous risk. And as we started to study this and we worked with our public health uh, leaders, we realized that if you look at the 2020 data of CDC, the most recent data, the, the enormous bulk of opioid overdose being the cause of unintentional death by, uh, by every age group from 25 to 64, and the number two cause of death in 15 to 24 year olds, we realized that there is an absolutely critical issue. And as we speak with uh, uh, Randy Steiner a little bit later, who is responsible for not only the college students, but also the staff at the University of California, Irvine, one of our leading universities, you start to see when you look at this uh, the, the, uh, data chart, and for those in the podcast, um, it's, an, it's just, just shocking to see how big opioid overdose 
motor vehicle accidents, falls, drowning, and suicide uh, tend to be all the way across the board a critical issue. So in 2015, we started something called MedTAC to identify uh, how we could prevent harm at Texas Medical Center that had 106,000 doctors, nurses, and students, 9 million patient encounters a year, 54 members, uh, all, all larger in geographic area, in fact, than the city center of Houston. Um, we were asked to look at the threats and help with a threat response system. And when we contacted the leaders in active shooter events, which was our initial focus, which is most people's initial focus, uh, we identified through Michael Dorn and his associates, uh, and Mr. Satter Satterley, that there are uh, about eight different things that uh, for which bystanders can have an enormous impact. And they're cardiac arrest, choking and drowning, opioid overdose, anaphylaxis, major trauma with bleeding after active shooter events, but also accidents, infection care, transportation accidents. And these are not traffic accidents. These are drive over accidents in driveways of schools and homes and bullying are a major, major issue. Also, the time is 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 really the enemy that we really are uh, playing a game of beat the clock and if we want to win against failure to rescue we have to beat the clock and we have to get bystander rescue care and keep oxygenation of vital organs uh happening uh uh at, at three minutes and longer because after three minutes the vital organs are starting to die so the cardiac arrest chain of survival we have on the uh, up graphically for the podcast uh, which are recognition and activation of 911, immediate CPR, rapid defibrillation with an automated defibrillator, basic and advanced emergency services, advanced life support in the hospital, and recovery are what are called the chain of survival with the American Heart Association. Also, there's a trauma chain of survival, and three minutes is critical there too. And we need to have bystander care to administer first aid, pre-hospital EMS care, hospital definitive care, early rehabilitation, and recovery and re-entry re into society. And these are the chains of survival there. So what we identified was a checklist, and I won't go through it because I really encourage you to go back to, to watch our our webinar in August, and uh, but I want to draw your attention to two checklists that uh, are in our slide deck and that I have up right now. One for high school freshmen and one for college freshmen with the basic actions of understanding uh, how to uh, activate 911, sudden cardiac arrest, choking and drowning, life-threatening allergies, opioids, major trauma, infections, transportation, accidents and bullying and suicide, and especially for rising college freshmen, having a power of attorney after the age of 18 in order to uh, be able to have families um, be able to help with the decision-making when you're remote. We're going from 17-year-olds who are sheltered in our home like mine is today uh, here where I live in Southern California to going to college and all of a sudden being an adult and understanding the critical nature of those issues. So we went through a checklist for high school freshmen, and the reason was vaping and a number of uh, different issues, such as using uh, pills that they think are prescription pills that are not, that have fentanyl and now 
trank and uh, xylosine in them uh, are really putting an enormous, enormous uh, risk, uh, putting our kids in enormous risk. And so it's critical we get to those high school freshmen and as well the college freshmen. Um, uh, and we mentioned the critical nature of having a medical power of attorney, smartphone uh, in case of emergency notification. Um, uh, knowing emergency providers and the medical record access is absolutely critical as well. But wait a minute, what about cyber risk? And so I'm going to briefly go through uh, just a recap of the critical issues regarding consent so that those that haven't heard our first webinar uh, on that topic, but then we're going to dive into the cyber risk of our young adults and have Randy Steiner uh, and I will have a discussion over those issues. Well, first off, um, uh, this idea of a reconciling framework we've developed years ago, and I've uh, engaged multiple experts. Dr. Gladstone McDowell helped us with the five rights of pain management and making sure that we have the right test, right diagnosis, right treatment, right monitoring, and right prevention. For those of you that are watching uh, or not watching the, the webinar, but are on the podcast, we make the, as a, I'm a biomedical systems engineer, we like frameworks that we can work from, and, and we use that in aviation. I'm uh, pilot as well. And uh, so this is a reconciling framework that is represented as a cycle because we're constantly wanting to uh, improve those things. Now, when we think about consent, now let's think about consent and I'm gonna, uh, and I, I just want to draw your attention uh, to uh, the slide uh, that I have up and those in the podcast. Who would have thought that uh, the the software engineer who developed cookies to help us remember how to have us have the system remember us when we go back to look at a cart or we go back to a web page that we've been looking at back in the mid 90s, who would have thought when he developed those cookies that then are um, put code actually on our computers and our now our phones to allow to remember us would be used for tracking our identity. Well, now they are and now regulatory guidelines are becoming into place because they're getting taking advantage of our uh, identity which leads us now to focus on the five rights of my identity. For those on the podcast, the five rights are the right consent, the right information, the right access to that information, the right use of that information, and the right protection. And when we think about those things, um, the new regulatory guidelines started in Europe with the um, uh, general data protection regulation and now in California where I live and coming across the nation, the California Consumer Protection Act, are new regulatory guidelines that now are going to protect our, our identity and forcing uh, Meta, Facebook, uh, Google, and these organizations to really um, uh, to really be, be now protecting us and deleting the cookies and no longer using cookies. So I'll show a short clip from our last uh, webinar. When we consider personal identity information, what is first party, second party, and third party personal data? First party, second party, and third party data are terms used in the context of data collection and ownership particularly with regard to personal information about consumers. They describe different sources and relationships regarding the data. First party data. Definition. First party data refers to the information that an organization collects directly from its own customers or users. 
It is data that the organization owns and controls because it is gathered from its interactions with individuals. Example, when a website collects data on a user's behavior, such as website visits, product views, or user preferences, that data is considered first-party data for the website owner. First-party data comes from a direct relationship with the customer, is collected with consent, is individual data, has high accuracy and reliability, is not shared. And examples include customer email, phone number, purchase history, support history, and loyalty program information. Second-party data. Definition. Second-party data is essentially someone else's first-party data that is shared with your organization through a direct partnership or agreement. It is data collected by another organization and then shared with your organization, typically in a mutually beneficial arrangement. Example, if an e-commerce company partners with a complementary business, such as a travel booking platform to exchange customer data with consent and privacy compliance, the travel platform's customer data, when used by the e-commerce company, becomes second-party data for them. Second-party data is indirect customer relationship-driven, collected with consent. Individual data, highly accurate and reliable, is shared only with trusted partners. Examples include website activity, social media profiles, customer feedback, and customer surveys. Third-party data. Definition. Third-party data is data that an organization acquires from external sources that are not the organization's own customers or partners. It is data collected and aggregated by other entities, such as data brokers, and is typically purchased or licensed for various purposes, including marketing and analytics. Example, if a marketing agency buys a data set of consumer preferences and demographics from a data broker to target advertising campaigns, that data set is considered third-party data for the marketing agency. Third-party data is an indirect customer relationship. It's unknown if it's collected with consent, depends on the data provider, is aggregated data, has low accuracy and reliability, is shared with many companies, and examples include income, age, education websites visited, and survey responses. The evolution to more secure first-party and second-party data is definitely on the move. So that's a quick recap of uh, what each one of the categories are. And as we start to move towards uh, a, um, a more protected environment, you will have certain rights that are critical. And so for those of you that are uh, on the podcast, uh, I'm going to go through each of the five rights. So cons right consent is proper consent must include privacy and use preferences and be revocable. The use of tools and methods such as cookies can track your online behavior, such as browsing history, preferences, and interactions. This information can be used to create detailed user profiles, which may infringe on a user's privacy. What's really important for today and we think about our youth and our young people, they're giving consent to things that we really don't understand, especially when they're involved in games and people are having access to their profiles, which you'll hear about in a few minutes. 
right information, the right for the information collected and used may be inaccurate. Third-party data that's unconsented for access and use, which is aggregated and integrated, may be accurate, inaccurate, and violate the privacy of the individual. So this data that is being aggregated by a number of organizations and pooled together might have dramatically different information about you, uh, which could put, potentially put you at risk. The right access. Uh, historically, third-party cookies have led to the data being shared with advertising and analytics companies without the user's full awareness or control. In order to be in full compliance with the evolving regulations, and these are the those which we discussed earlier, access to personal data must be granted. And then the right use. Individuals should have the right to privacy and use, and use preferences that may be revocable and granted regularly. And this is really where we are heading uh, to be able to give you that opportunity. Right protection. It's critical that the personal identity information that's collected and stored is protected from breach, misuse, fraud, and potential harm to individuals and families. And this is where vulnerability, we have an enormous uh, uh, vulnerability uh, with, uh, in our organizations uh, uh, with, the, with these problems. It's, uh, uh, it, it really does um, uh, it, it really does put us at, uh, at an enormous, uh, enormous uh, uh, risk. So what about the detail of these definitions of consent? What's important about those? What is consent? The definition of consent typically involves the following key elements. Voluntary agreement. Consent must be freely given meaning that users should not be subjected to undue pressure, manipulation, or negative consequences if they choose not to provide consent. Users should have a unique choice in whether or not to allow the use of cookies. Informed. Users must be informed about what they're consenting to. This means they should receive clear and transparent information about the types of cookies being used, the purposes for which data is collected, and who the data will be shared with, among other relevant details. Specific and granular. Consent should be specific to each purpose for which the cookies are used. Websites should not bundle multiple purposes into a single consent request, but should instead ask for separate consents for different types of cookies. Examples include necessary cookies, analytics cookies, advertising cookies. Affirmative action. Consent must be given through an affirmative action, such as clicking an accept button toggling a switch, or actively selecting options in a cookie settings menu. Pre-ticked boxes or assumed consent, examples through the use of pre-checked boxes, are generally not considered valid forms of consent. Easily withdrawn. Users should have the ability to withdraw their consent at any time with the same level of ease with which they gave it. This means that websites should provide users with clear options to change their cookie preferences and opt out of data collection. Child consent. In many jurisdictions, obtaining consent from parents or guardians is required when collecting data from children below a certain age. Example, 13 years of age in the United States. So as we, as we think about these things, and now we talk about our youth, uh, it's absolutely critical that we uh, focus 
uh, on our, our high school freshmen, our high school students, those that are under age, that are under 18 years of age, and then what about the freshmen that uh, in college who are uh, who are uh, older and immediately are an adult and at risk for uh, felonies and all kinds of things because they're uh, they're older. And then now, what about? Wait a minute. What about cyber risk? And this is where we uh, we really think that it is uh, critical that we um, uh, that we address some of these. Uh, awful things that uh, are happening in uh, in the environment today. We've noticed this uh, probably in, in January of this year, and uh, we've really kind of seen it exponentially grow around June. Sex torsion is a problem no parent wants to find their child caught up in. Compromising pictures or conversations threatened to be exposed. And now law enforcement is seeing a new shift in how sex torsion happens. It shows gangs targeting adolescent and teen boys instead of girls. Casey Cronus has more in tonight's special report. It starts out simple enough. A young boy receives a social media friend request from a cute girl he doesn't know. But there's much more to that message. So they'll do 100, 200, 300 friend requests in one single day. Rich Wistocki is a retired Naperville cybercrime detective who now travels the country talking to students and law enforcement about cyber safety. So we're seeing a, a break right now where gangs all over the country and all over the world are sex trafficking young girls. And their job is to engage in boys' conversations online and in video chat. Once the boy and the girl are video chatting, Wistaki says the girl does this. They ask the kid, do you like what you see? And then they start engaging in sexual activity over a webcam. Well, what's happening in the background that gang person who has trafficked this young girl, screen capture, screen capture, screen capture. Wistaki says the young girl will also ask the boy to see his face and his room, things that will make him identifiable. While that's happening... In the background, they're copying all their contact information on their Snapchat and their Instagram. So when the sexual activity is done, the gang person comes up on the camera and says, now that we have you, you better send us $250 in gift cards. Wistaki says some boys will go get their parents' credit cards so they can send the money to the gang that is sextorting him. And then it's either being sent to the Philippines, the UK, Russia. The trends that we're seeing are uh, international offenders, um, specific kind of to um, West Africa, Nigeria, the Ivory Coast. Chicago HSI Special Agent Susan Jensen investigates child exploitation cases. She's also seen this new sextortion shift. Our office is receiving leads on a daily basis um, with individuals that have been exploited. While it can be difficult to prosecute an overseas offender, Jensen says Homeland Security's Cyber Crime Center is working closely with its international field offices and foreign governments to try to make that happen. There are steps you can take to protect yourself from becoming a victim. A lot of what we're seeing now is Instagram and Snapchat, um, different social media sites where kids have their um, profiles that are unblocked, they're not private, 
and then they have their list of friends available for uh, everybody to see as well. Jensen says making your profile private is one of the biggest steps you can take to protect yourself from sextortion scams. She adds it's one kids don't often do. One of the things we see our kids want to have several you know, hundreds, thousands of followers, so they'll leave their profile open and anybody can friend them. Jensen and Wistaki say it's important to send investigators screenshots of everything that transpired, information on where they want the money to go, and user ID accounts. Lastly, have the technology talk with your kids. Let them know what the rules are when using their devices and this. No one has the right to make you do something you're not supposed to do. No one has the right to make you feel bad about yourself. If they're sextorting you, you need to tell your parents. Another important step that our experts recommend parents take is no electronic devices in your kids' rooms when they go to sleep at night. Familiar with the terms blackmail, extortion, or revenge porn, but now there's something called sextortion, a very real and often deadly scam aimed at teenagers through social media. They're tricked into sharing compromising photos of themselves with someone they believe to be in an online relationship with, and once they do, the scammers say they're going to post those photos unless they get money. As MTN's Jill Valley explains, kids in Montana are falling victim. Waylon was definitely a different breed, and I knew it from the time he was three months old. Like, wow, look what I got. 16-year-old Waylon Schaefer, a popular high schooler in Houston, Montana. Somebody who loved what all Montana kids do. Hunting, his truck, his family. That kid lived the best life a little Montana boy ever could have. But on December 14th, 2022, this young life came to a tragic end. It was a normal morning, and that's one thing I'm really happy about, that in this house, you did never go to bed or leave the house every day without saying, I love you, have a good day. I had, I had three minutes to see what was going through his head. So that's his silver uh, Ram charger sitting out there, and I noticed it was gone. And that's when I knew immediately, like, something is not right. Waylon drove up Nine Mile near his home and took his own life. I knew something backed him into a corner, but it just took a month to find out what it really was. He didn't want to do what he did. Waylon was being blackmailed in a scam called sextortion, and it's often aimed at teenagers, a crime explained to me by Montana Attorney General Austin Knudsen. What we see and what sextortion is, is someone online typically posing as a peer, posing as someone who is, you know, romantically or, or sexually interested in, in, in another young person, will, will get explicit photos of that person, and then they will turn around and try to blackmail them. I met with Brian Cassidy, a computer crimes agent with the Montana Department of Justice in Helena. He told me since September of last year, he's had some 49 emergency calls for Montana kids in crisis over this scam. And they tell them, like, we're going to post this to your school, to your community. We're going to send this to that college you told us that you applied for. And it's going to ruin your life going forward, or you have to send us some money. Jason believes in the hours before his son died, Waylon's online relationship suddenly flipped, and he was immediately trapped by foreign blackmailers, and this 16-year-old started to panic. But basically they threatened him to the point that they basically told him, like, hey, we're sending them out one by one right now. 
I firmly believe he thought that everything was out there. So before he drove up Nine Mile and sat down underneath the tree and did his business, he uh, he deleted his entire phone. There was no text messages. There was no there was no apps. There was nothing. Waylon isn't the only one caught in this deadly web. I googled sextortion and suicide, and a tragic story emerged. Dozens of teens have chosen to die, presumably because they were embarrassed or ashamed, and those on the other end of this scam simply don't care. They don't care about anybody else's life they don't uh, you know I, I wish they had a different heart but they I mean they're at the point where they there's been kids that say hey I'm just gonna go kill myself and keep bugging me and they say go ahead your life's already over these people it's their job they go to work 10 hours a day they sit in their space with their laptop and they build fake profiles and they aim them at specific ages all I had to do is get on his phone and send those guys a nice little selfie with a middle finger and say, leave him alone, and it would have been over with. It would have been over with. I asked Jason why he was willing to share this painful story with me. He says it's because others need to know about this menacing crime against our children, and because he knows right now there's somebody else in trouble. It's the only way I can really avenge it, honestly. You know, I mean, it's the only way I can. It's, it's good medicine, like I told you. It's the only way I can, I can feel like I'm doing something for him. Like, people need to talk about it. You can't say enough about it. You cannot spread the, the word enough. Our kids are just so naive. So these are terrible, terrible stories, and they're variations of these things, and, and uh, we have to all be aware of them as a public health issue. Sexting and the risk to their future and their life is also critical. A North Carolina teenager faces sex crime charges this morning after trading nude photographs with his girlfriend. But prosecutors consider both teenagers to be victims and criminals for sexting. The boy is now suspended as a quarterback of his high school football team. They were both 16 at the time. The boyfriend faces five counts of sexual exploitation of a minor. The girlfriend was charged with two counts. But those charges were dropped after she took a plea deal. The boyfriend, by the way, we are not naming their names. He heads to court this month. CBS News legal expert Ricky Kleeman is a former sex crimes prosecutor and joins us at the table. This is one of those things, Ricky, where you go, what? Because, well, it was consensual for both sides. That's what I don't understand. It may have been, may have been a bad, a silly thing to do, but it was consensual. It is indeed consensual. This is kind of Alice in Wonderland in the form of technology reaches mm. the law. When I first read this story, and I am not joking with you, I read the first paragraph over and over and over again because I thought I read it wrong. Yeah. I didn't think this was possible. Consider this. If you are 16, you are considered an adult as a defendant in terms of committing a crime. You can be charged as an adult. If you are 16, you are also considered a minor in terms of if you get exploited. So she and he separately are each arrested and charged with exploiting themselves, themselves as minors. Now let's just think about that logic. Mm. So we're left with him right now because she wisely, appropriately on the part of the prosecutor, if she had to be charged at all, which I do think is preposterous, that she winds up pleading to a misdemeanor. She's on a probation for a year. Her record will be expunged at the end of the year if she follows her conditions. He, however, has to go to court this month. He is facing five charges. Four of them are for sexually exploiting himself as a minor, for the photos he has on his own cell phone of himself, 
The other one is for the consensual photo he got from his girlfriend. They're romantically involved. He had not shown that photo to anyone else, did not disseminate it. The only people who saw that were the police or and the sheriff's the, and office. So how did the police discover these photographs? The police or the sheriff's office were investigating another crime. They went to him in connection with the other crime, which apparently he had nothing to do with. He agreed, because he's 16 years old, to let them rifle through his phone. Oh my goodness. And they find, because he consented, uh, pictures of himself that are inappropriate. And then they find the picture of her, and so it snowballs. Now, the police want to be the deterrent value here. Deterrent value should come from parents, should mm -hmm. come from educators. We do not want to criminalize our teens for doing stupid things mm -hmm. on their cell phones. My word to the kids is, don't take pictures of yourself. Maybe you know. shouldn't we rethink the law? We should this, rethink this law the law. Wasn't meant for this. Of course not. And the only way to deal with the law is to get the legislature to clarify it. Yeah, all right. We first told you about this yesterday, about a pair of 14-year-old boys facing felony charges on New York's Long Island. Police say they shared an explicit video that included another minor, but up to 20 middle and high school students were suspended, some for just receiving the video. Police escorted student A.J. Fenton from the school grounds. He and his father are upset. I don't think I should have got suspended at all. It's, I can't stop someone from sending a text to me. What happened here can happen in any town in this country. My son it. simply received a group text which had a video attached to it. CBS News legal expert Ricky Kleeman is here and joins us at the table to discuss. I think AJ makes a very good point. He can't stop somebody from sending stuff and he didn't pass it on. Well, part of the problem is the idea of receipt. We can't stop people from sending us things we don't want. Right. If we merely receive it, should something happen to us? Well, in this case, thankfully, the police did not go after the 20, uh, at least as far as this point in time is concerned, because they haven't disseminated it further. But what we do have is the act of receive, and the school has gone after them. Why? Because the school says, you violated our code of conduct. Mm. How? You should have told a responsible adult that something was wrong. Now, when you look at the process... Who's going to do that, Ricky? Well, uh, especially young students. Yeah. If you receive If you have a good, strong code of conduct, that's part of school. Schools have codes of conduct all the time. If you see someone cheating, you're supposed to, to tell on them. And well, well, I think that seeing someone... shared responsibility. Seeing someone cheating enters a child's mind where they know that yeah. that's wrong. Yeah. Receiving um, a video and gathering around together at the lunch hour right. and giggling about it, I don't know if it goes through their head that it's wrong, but nonetheless... But it should. It, well, Maybe that's the problem. I mean, if you're getting a, a video of a woman or a young girl in a compromising situation, then shouldn't that be alarming? Well, that's exactly what the school says. Yeah. And what the school says is that to the parents, don't be angry with us, the school. You ought to be looking at what's going on in your households. If you're going to prosecute a kid for something like this, then it must be knowing. If you possess these selfies or other videos that are naked of children, well, then we have to know that you know what it is. It wasn't inadvertent. It wasn't unintentional. Well, what about the two 14-year-old boys that sent, sent this? What, what charges could they face? Well, they're facing felony charges, two of them, plus a misdemeanor. They're facing the felony of promoting the sexual performance of a child 
also disseminating indecent materials mm -hmm. to Rico, minors. do you think that kids should have been disciplined by the school? I think that there is some degree of discipline that would be necessary if, in fact, they've shared. If they have no, merely received it, if they merely received no, I don't and think should so. They it and, to the authorities. They probably should have reported it to the authorities. However, but if, they if didn't, you should they be disciplined? Well, the problem that's in the, the discipline. That's on the table. No, no, I say they shouldn't be disciplined in the sense of suspension, okay. because what happens with suspension is this, Charlie. They're going to go off to college. College says, have you ever been right. suspended? And then why? Possessing child pornography? Very bad Not for right. these kids. Mm -hmm. Interesting point. Ricky yeah. Kleeman. Right. So this is a, a real dilemma for all of us uh, uh, who have kids and for us as a public health issue. And uh, the laws and regulations and common sense is just not caught up uh, with um, the technologies. Uh, I, I'm delighted to have Randy Steiner with us today, who's the uh, Director of Emergency uh, Response at the University of California, Irvine, who's responsible for college students and these rising freshman college students, as well as our college students who are all at risk for not only the things we talk about in our MedTech program, but now this cyber risk and uh, uh randy uh, your thoughts and we have another clip after uh, you speak uh, about uh, two suicides that occurred because of the shame that these kids go through but uh, randy your thoughts uh, after you've seen this yeah it's it really you know it, it covers a lot of you know the, the the issues that i've been you know thinking about in terms of of you know the exposure to um to, to children and young adults, very young adults, uh, to this this these types of issues on the internet. It really, you know, to me, it goes into you know the 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 biggest concern is the lack of of any kind of of a backstop or any kind of you know protective measures, um, you know, to prevent these these issues from happening. I, I you know, in this day and age of technology, uh, you know, being what it is. I'm quite sure that there could be filters, you know, on websites that could, you know, ensure that this type of content doesn't happen. That could, you know, prevent these kind of of, of issues from happening, you know, particularly to to young children. Um, you know, that's not happening. There's, you know, the 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 social media companies and the places, the platforms where these crimes are occurring, you know, the 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 the, the scene of the crime, so to say, they have absolutely have shown they have no interest in addressing these issues. Um, you know, unless there's some action taken, you know, in terms of of law, there's they're they're not going to take that interest. They're going to take the data from our children and use them to sell them things. That's that's what they do. They have no interest in 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 taking whatever measures need to take to to protect our children from these things. Uh, you know, and when you know the, the people turn around and say, you know, well, this you you you're in a you know the adults need to take charge and and you know you need to protect your children from their content online. And we, any adult that has a child that has any kind of interaction online, they, they, we know that's that's just not possible. There needs to be. I mean, there is to some Especially extent. 
especially in the gaming, uh, you know, as, you know, as we watch our kids and then they ask for information and, and the video we'll share, share in a few minutes, you know, the access to these kids was through their Instagram accounts mm -hmm. and, and they all want to have followers so that they're opened up to that. And, uh, they're just such vulnerability. And really the only thing we can really do is to focus as you and I, have discussed on just really awareness building because the regulations and the laws and the leaders and the companies just haven't caught up with this huge threat. I agree. And it's, you know, I don't think that from, you know, the, the, the law enforcement aspect there, they're, they don't really know how to, how to address it either because they have these, these laws, they have these tools, which, you know, are, you know, set to protect children. And there's, you know, they, we need to have those laws, but it's a matter of how those laws are being, you know, in, enacted and, and who's being swept up in those laws. I don't, don't believe that when, you know, the legislators thought about these laws and the penalties behind, you know, violating these laws, they were thinking about, you know, a 16, 17, 18 year old kid. They were thinking about, you know, the, 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 the adult pedophiles. The, the people that we were talking about on the on the 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 first video about these people that just you know stalk these children for the intent of either exploiting them or getting content from them you know to feed this the 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 the, the tubes of the 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 child pornography industry you know it's that's what those laws were designed to do you know and when you see you know, the children that are continually being exploited, you go to any big city in the country and drive down streets, you see minors being exploited. You know, you, you see the, the 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 children prostitutes that nobody is addressing. Nobody's dealing anything with that. But they're going after these kids for what's happening on their online to them, especially after COVID, when everybody was locked up and this was their only social outlet. Yeah. This is where this occurred. And so you know, these, uh, these, these things are occurring, you know, the, and then, you know, there's the case in the last video, the, the, the lady really addressed it perfectly. It's just like, you know, do these kids even know what they're doing? I mean, Mansrea is a, is a, <laughs> a part of our, our, our judicial system. And that, that says that somebody has to kind of know that they're committing a crime to be guilty of that crime. And I don't think that these these kids do. And that it all goes back to what protections are out there. You know, what protections are out there to keep these from happening? And that has to fall on the owners of these platforms. It has to, because the owners of those platforms, when they have kids swapping child porn, they are now in possession of that child porn. So what about them? And what, what's the consequence? I don't understand because possession is this big deal. And I couldn't believe on the, the story about the kid getting suspended for just having it on his phone and he didn't distribute it. And now he's got to say he's been suspended for child pornography. He's got to say that. You know, if he's honestly responding to a questionnaire and, and you, Randy, are, are a protector of our college students. You've got college freshmen this next year that are coming in that are my son's age that are coming in. And I, I think they're totally naive to the threats of uh, that, that the risk that they uh, that, that they have with their their mobile uh, technologies. Yeah, it's it's I think that's probably that transition from senior year in high school to to college is one of the most dangerous places because you know if 
And particularly that a lot of people, you know, they move from home and they go to different places and they may have a, a, an underage girlfriend or boyfriend from high school and just turned 18 and their, 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 their boyfriend, girlfriend is still 16, 17 years old. They don't even understand that if they move away and go to college out of state and continue to have that relationship with that person. Now it's a federal crime. <laughs> now you're being charged under federal statutes of of trafficking and 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 you know interstate distribution. Those kind of laws come in, and those are that was a shocker. You and I started talking about this in the last couple of months. I had to look up the definitions. I had to look that up, like. Not only did I not even know about any of these laws, and then I see how big problem it is, but even the, the vernacular and the fact that an 18-year-old can then be treated as a 16-year-old, or a 16-year-old can be treated as an adult in some states, it's just, it's just frightening. I'm going to show, uh, uh, we'll continue this discussion. I'm going to show uh, uh, the, the, another video here and the threat, this issue of the shame part is and and the kids needing to be able to um uh, to deal with that it's just it's just shocking when you've got these terrible predators that are after them and uh so i'll uh, just share this and then randy will come back to you uh, uh and then we'll talk about the program and we're so delighted to have you helping us with this uh refreshment readiness uh, uh strategy that we've been discussing they sent James 200 messages in 19 and a half hours. 200 messages saying you're nothing, you're hopeless, will make your life a living hell. You might as well end it now. Where's our money? Tamia Woods' pain is clear. Her son, James Timothy Woods, a 6'2 hurdler was a popular high school senior who loved anime, chess, and video games. Now his parents are speaking at schools with a desperate warning. You all are targets. They want your money. They want $10. They want $20. They want $100. And they don't care if you're not here. Tamia and Tim's son's tragic death is part of an alarming trend called sextortion targeting young boys between the ages of 10 and 18 on social media, apps, and through video games. This is an epidemic that is running rampant. Scammers posing as young teen girls lurking online, sliding into phones and gaming devices of unsuspecting kids. In 2022, there are over 7,000 reported sextortion cases against children in America. In my experience, in fact, I would think that number is well over 100,000 cases that have not been reported. Their tactics, friendly and flirty at first, enticing victims into sending a nude pic and then flipping the script, demanding payment under a threat they'll expose those explicit photos to the world, especially family and friends. The goal is to ramp up that stress. That's also how they're getting a lot of young kids across the country to take their own lives. The FBI tells ABC News more than 20 kids have died by suicide directly because of sextortion. These people are professional con artists. Every day I told my son I loved him. And in 19 and a half hours, they convinced him otherwise. It's a mind game. In November 2022, James died by suicide after DMing over Instagram with someone he thought was a teenage girl. 
conversation eventually moved over to a video chat. She asked him if he would like to view her unclothed. He said yes. She undressed. Then she said, okay, your turn. He did it too. But she revealed herself to be an extortionist. She said the screen grab of James would end up online unless he paid her $6,000 with the untraceable method of gift cards. Like James, Jordan DeMay seemed to have everything going for him. A star athlete and a homecoming king in Marquette, Michigan. Jordan was a very happy guy. He was always dancing or singing, listening to music. He had a lot of friends. But last year, he too had a chance encounter on Instagram. It started out with the supposed girl saying, hey, we have some friends in common. That girl with the handle Danny Roberts enticing Jordan to send her a nude photo, then demanding money. I have screenshot all your followers and tags. You can send these nudes to everyone and also send your nudes to your family and friends until it goes viral. All you've to do is cooperate with me and I won't expose you. Jordan asks, how much? Danny, a thousand dollars. Jordan, a victim of sextortion, now spiraling. I'll kill myself right now, he writes, because of you. Good, Danny replies. Do that fast. He eventually sent Danny Roberts money. We paid him $300. Paid him what, what he could. We sent another transaction for $20 or $30. That's all I have. I can't pay anymore. And they kept pushing and pushing. And they were building collages with his compromised photo with other photos of his friends and family and parents threatening to send it out to them and keep putting the pressure on them. They never gave him a single minute to think. And just six torturous hours from that first message. He shot himself with a firearm in his bed. It was obviously total shock. I think I even said that to him when he was there. I was like, why? As soon as I called 911, I called Jennifer. And he said, Jordan's gone. And I said, no, no, no. Then Jordan's girlfriend, Kyla, started receiving menacing messages. And I randomly happened to see a direct message on Instagram with photos. One explicit photo of Jordan. And I felt like I had to respond. Who are you? Why do you have these photos? It was a random account that looked like a teenage girl. They threatened to send these photos to my family and my friends. And I was panicked. I was terrified. Why are you doing this? Kyla sought help. She told her parents who went to the police. They were able to get her phone and follow the IP address. At that point, it's a matter of officers starting to follow the breadcrumbs. Eight months later, a major break in the case. Two of the men charged after the Jordan DeMace extortion death will make their first appearance in a U.S. courtroom. So Danny Roberts, as we've alleged, is a fictitious name. The perpetrators in this case secured a hacked Instagram account. They 
found an image of, a, of an attractive young woman that they found online. They attributed it to this account and they, they made up a name. It turns out Jordan wasn't up against just one scammer, but six of them, all located halfway around the world in Lagos, Nigeria. We're seeing a majority of the cases recently leading us back to Western Africa, specifically Nigeria. Today, we are announcing the successful extradition of two Nigerian nationals who ran an international sextortion ring. Samuel Ogashi, age 22, and Samson Ogashi, age 20. The Ogashi brothers have pled not guilty and are currently awaiting trial here in the US. Two families are going to be destroyed because of this. There is another mother somewhere in Nigeria missing her two sons. And it's really unfortunate that both families are in this situation because of this senseless act and $300. For emotional support, call or text 988 at the anonymous suicide and crisis lifeline. So, uh, Randy, your thoughts as somebody in law enforcement who, um, you know, we, we know these predators are very sophisticated. And as I was talking with uh, Chief Adcox yesterday, and we were doing a lot in AI, the only way to beat these guys is to have better AI than the bad guys. And they're really sophisticated. They took advantage of, uh, of Instagram and knowing how to get a hold of um, everyone's uh, contact information. And so we have to be more knowledgeable than they are to play offense or because deep, it's going so fast and they move so quickly, we can't play defense. I mean, we're just falling on the ball right now and we're going to lose. No, I, and I agree. And I go back to my earlier comments that, you know, we have to hold these, the social media companies and the platforms that are supporting these crimes accountable. Uh, you know, they, and we're not, and as long as we don't, they're going to continue. They're going to be exploited by the criminals who are using them to, 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 you know, trap our youth, you know, here and here in this country and ex continue to exploit them. And it's, you know, law enforcement, and I'm a, a, always been, and always will be a staunch supporter of law enforcement, but they really need to look at what their priorities are. And, you know, if you're putting you know, teenagers in jail with everything else that's going on when this, this, these sophisticated, you know, criminal enterprises are continuing to exist and impact our children. You, you really need to look at your priorities. We need to look at our priorities as a country and, and decide, you know, what is it that we're, we're trying to accomplish? Are we trying to fix the problem or are we just, you know, snatching up the, the, the bus that we can because those those teenagers that are sitting in prison right now for having get gotten swept up into this, they're not the problem. The problem is much bigger than we seem to want to address. And you know, I just encourage our law enforcement agencies to really take a look at that and find out what the issue is. And I encourage us as Americans, as citizens of this world, to hold these companies, these multi-billion dollar companies that are using our children to gather data and to make money they need to be held accountable 
for the content that goes across their, their sites. And until that happens, this problem is going to continue. Right. Well, it, you know, we're just so grateful to have your uh, desire to help us support and especially with uh, those uh, rising freshmen um, shifting gears now to uh, accidents. And we know that there are 20 times and we'll hear a short video uh, about the, the fact that there are 20 times the number of accidental deaths at our colleges than there are crimes is just draw attention to um, uh, the Houseman family and Nanette Houseman, who we recently lost, who was just a wonderful woman who lost her son actually due to a skateboard accident uh, when he was just in the first few weeks of his uh, freshman year of college. And he did not have a power of attorney. And our work with her and now Joel, her husband, is to really help drive the message to our families, and this is new caregivers that are listening today, it's critical that our young freshmen have a medical power of attorney, not only where they're going to school, but where they may go for spring break and elsewhere, because they're 18. Um, th there's the limitation of reaching out to family members to make decisions when they've had a healthcare crisis and been in an accident. And in the case of Corey, it was a head injury. Smartphone in case of emergency notification. All of our smartphones now have that capability. And most people don't realize that you can actually put in that if your son or your daughter or any of you dial 911, it could automatically call your ICE, your in case of emergency, and uh, to put that in. And we all need to do that. The other thing is knowing where our major medical centers are. And, and, and as you, you know, Randy, you've got a world-class emergency department at UCI. And our students uh, here in, in, in Southern California need to know where the trauma, trauma one centers, the, the level one trauma centers are, and where our, our, our best emergency medicine uh, care is, and not just an urgent care center, especially when they've got another a college student who might have alcohol poisoning or and they're worried and and have a problem and then medical record access being able to have access to uh, you know those uh, those critical uh, that critical information uh, that is just uh, just vital uh, uh, to be able to address and we'll come back to chief adcox here in a minute if we have time on the on the the uh, the, the four p's but um, uh, Randy as we kind of talk about now, what can we do? You know, it's it's kind of like to some degree we feel a little bit handicapped by uh, feeling that, well, what can we do with all of these terrible things that are going on? And uh, we just want to thank you for your desire to, to really help, um, uh, you know, help focus on a call to action uh, for our those rising, uh, those rising freshmen. This is uh, Charlie, my 17 year old, who uh, is going to try to call on uh, those students that are going to be working with you, Randy. Hi, I'm Charlie Denham. I'm a competitive surfer, a lifeguard, and a rescue diver. This is a call to action for our high school and college students. We students have a great opportunity to take a leadership role in our schools and communities. Three questions are, why, why us, and why now? Why? There are 20 times the number of deaths by medical causes, accidents, and bad decisions we make than from crime. Why us? because we have a voice that other students will listen to. Why now? Because it is a perfect time to have real impact, impact on rising high school freshmen and rising college freshmen like me. Through our MedTech program, I had the wonderful opportunity to chair a group of students and alumni from colleges all over the country to help families get through emergencies. They were terrific. 
All we had to do is ask them to step up. Since then, I've had the opportunity to help train college athletic teams and help emergency response teams as well. We're here on the campus at UCSD and we're teaching the surf team MedTax Bystander Rescue Care with CPR and first aid. Right now, they're demonstrating how to use tourniquets and hopefully save lives in the future on any surf trips or any practices. We are putting together a freshman readiness course to help college freshmen avoid threats and risks so they can help each other have a great college experience. Community service and athletic awards open the door for me to spread the word to rally students and adults into the game. We can all learn and even teach the basic skills of bystander rescue care for those leading causes of death that harm our teams, friends, and families. For those of us with a passion for saving lives and protecting our ocean and coastlines, you can join the Be the First Responder program with the Surfrider Foundation. Whether you are a senior in high school, like me, preparing to go to college, a rising freshman in high school, or already in college, there's a role you can play to help. Whether it's learning and helping teach CPR and how to stop severe bleeding, or even helping put rescue stations at beaches, parks, or schools, there's something you can do. Join us. Thanks for stepping up. I know we can save lives, our ocean, and our coastlines together. So, Randy, you, uh, you have done a terrific job of really rallying uh, students and your own son and other uh, scouts to help with uh, uh, rescue stations and putting uh, uh, Stop the Bleed kits together. Do you want to kind of maybe give your pitch to other organizations to step up? Because many of them, many don't even have AEDs in some parts of the campuses, and you know that as well as I do, but uh, uh, many don't have Stop the Bleed kits and, and don't have, uh, uh, have, have that rescue equipment available. You want to maybe get, make your pitch to other leaders at other universities? Yeah, just, um, you know, the, first and foremost, it's, it's, it's doable. It's something that, that you can do. Um, getting, you know, people certified to be stop the bleed instructors is, you know, a, a very easy process. It is not difficult at all to even become a stop the bleed instructor. It takes a very minimal amount of time and resources, and it is something that is absolutely crucial uh, and critical to, to saving lives. Um, you know, so many people, uh, you know, die of uh, you know, bleeding out in, in severe bleeding incidences where they could have been saved if people would have known how to do that. That's that's just statistically, you're correct. Um, but it's we either way, people having the equipment and knowing how to use it are two different things. And you know, making sure that people on your your campuses or in your communities have access to that training and have the resources to to get that training. Um, it's not technically difficult to do and people, the more people who learn it, the more lives are going to be saved in, in, you know, any of these, these, you know, events or medical emergency events. So I just encourage, you know, any campus to, to establish programs, to, to provide resources to people who want to get that training and, um, make sure that, that everybody who wants it can have it and encourage the people who haven't really thought about it to continue to 
or to get that training as well. And so more people that are trained, the better off the campus is going to be. So Randy, you are uh, doing a terrific job at UCI and we put up for the podcast audience uh, a, a slide that really addresses some of the highlights and you might want to leverage, you know, comment on them. We have a thousand student athletes die every year of cardiac arrest of undiagnosed heart problems. My son actually had a cardiac, cardiac arrhythmia and had he not gone to a screening program, just a screening program that is school, we would not have known it. And as a competitive surfer who's really stressing his body incredibly, he, he could have died in the water and we would never know why. 1,100 college students commit suicide every year. And we saw the video regarding um, one, of the, one of the major causes. One in four college students meet the criteria for alcohol dependence or abuse. Incredible. 1,825 college students die of alcohol-related injuries. One in five college students experienced cyber bully, bullying, which is linked to suicide. And there's even a term called bullicide. And then Randy, you know, we just see an incredible number of opioid deaths. And, and all the, although the politicians talk about it all the time, I haven't heard one solution yet to the challenges of fentanyl being mixed in to counterfeit, uh, counterfeit drugs or meds. They talk about it, but uh, you know, all we can do right now is is make our youth and our college students aware and really get them ready to use Narcan and know what to do if somebody stops breathing. You know, you want to comment on any of these topics as we get ready to close? No, on the, the you know, the, the opioid issues as well, you know, all this, it's, it's what, what are the sources, you know, of, of, of these, these, you know, fentanyl-laced drugs, you know, these these disguised prescription drugs. We have to look at that again. And where's it coming from? It's coming from online. It's coming from these online platforms that are, you know, just like they're being used as as platforms to exploit children sexually, they're also being exploit ex used to to distribute these these drugs. Um, and uh, until those companies take action to work with law enforcement and to, you know, put a few of their profits aside to help stem the tide of this, that we're going to continue to have this problem. It all goes on to the people who manage those platforms. They are responsible for that content and we have to hold them accountable. And until we do, this is this problem is going to continue because it's a free flow. There's nothing that is preventing these kids from obtaining these drugs and these fentanyl laced drugs that end up killing them. And until there there's mechanisms put in place to, to prevent that on those platforms, it's going to continue. And, and, you know, there's so much doom and gloom over these things, but our freshman readiness course is actually, and we'll be putting it online as we develop it. And we're just so grateful to have such a great leader like you uh, helping us. We're going to focus on mind, body, spirit, and their personal brand. And the personal brand, you know, people don't think about it, but, you know, the young man that uh, um, had the suspension uh, and those that get caught in some of these uh, ridiculous uh, just receiving content over the web, and now they have that will be part of their resume as they go forward. So as we think of the NIL, the name, the image, the likeness, uh, the mind, the body, the spirit, what are the things that we can focus on in the positive way 
And then what are the things that we can do to, do to deal with these emerging threats? And we're going to be using Rick Warren's Created to Dream, absolutely terrific book. Um, I've known Rick for over 20 years as my pastor. And uh, I, uh, you know, I just think that this is a, a great way for young people to start to look at their future and say, what about their internships? What about their future job applications and that kind of thing? So we're so grateful uh, to have you helping us uh, with that. Uh, Randy, as we as we close uh, next month, we're going to talk about now that we've talked about consent and we've talked about the vulnerability of your information. What about the medical record issues? And we have the five rights of medical records, which I developed back um, when uh, I was writing the national standard for the NQF, the National Quality Forum, on getting your medical records. And so we will be addressing um, this in our next webinar, but we'll really be focused on the overlap between how we protect our medical records and um, and how we optimize the care that we can receive. So, you know, most people don't realize it that you actually don't own them, but you have a legal right to have them. So we'll talk about that. Uh, access is critical as a cancer doctor, former cancer, uh, practicing cancer doctor, I'm a retired radiation oncologist. The medical records are absolutely vital to the care that you uh, receive, especially in emergency medicine, in cancer care, in chronic care, and then the breakdown in communication. So the rights that we focus on are the right to ownership, the right to access, the right to communication. Good communication of the medical records is absolutely vital. And it's why in this day and age, when we have electronic media, everyone should be able to have at least a clinical resume on their phone just in case they were to be involved in an accident. And, and you've worked very closely, uh, Randy, with our, our first responders and helped lead them how important it is that our first responders actually know somebody uh, is a diabetic, know that somebody has uh, an allergy that for which they need an EpiPen. And so updates to the medical records are absolutely key and critical and the medical problems list and the medication list and then security. And this is what we've been talking about today and what we'll talk about again as we go forward is that the critical nature of the security of those medical records and the fact that uh, we can't count on our organizations to be able to, to, uh, to, to focus on that. So in our, our final quote, just a short uh, segment, we'll go a few minutes over, is uh, we've asked Chief Adcox, who's the Chief Security Officer, Chief Medical, uh, the Chief uh, uh, of Police at Texas Medical Center, the largest medical center in the country, to address the four Ps which we'll focus on. It's a real pleasure to introduce uh, Chief uh, Bill Adcox, who is uh, the Chief Security Officer and Vice President at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's the Chief of Police at the University of Texas at Houston Police Department. Um, he has just been a longstanding champion of uh, performance improvement in the emerging threats that we're addressing, much broader than COVID. And our hope is, again, uh, Chief, that we can get back to, and you'll hear from, from Dr. Boats, uh, that we will be really excited about getting back to some of these emerging threats. We covered the issue of the state of our safety net and the fact that we've got major gaps in this safety net uh, last month. And um, uh, we have video actually showing uh, metaphorically how some of the safety net isn't even beneath us and because things have evolved so quickly and that there are major gaps. Uh, Chief, would you go through the concept of how you taught us, our whole team, about left of boom that you derive from the military? 
Uh, sure, Dr. Denham, and thank you everybody for being here today. Um, I left the room. This is a term that was coined by the, <clears throat> excuse me, the United States military while we were battling uh, terrorism uh, on the front lines in, in Iraq. Uh, the, the terrorists had become very well, very, very good at uh, developing IEDs, which are improvised explosive devices and planting them. And our vehicles would drive over them and a large explosion would damage the vehicles. And unfortunately, it was killing a lot of our soldiers or, or permanently injuring them or seriously injuring them. And so the military was able to obtain a, a tremendous amount of funding, billions of dollars in order to harden the vehicles so that they could survive a, an IED attack. And, and that was that was okay, but it, they were still occurring. And what they learned pretty fast is they needed to do something to prevent IEDs from being planted to begin with. So they went back to Congress for more money and, and, and the understanding was is they felt like they had already given them money to deal with the problem. So what they explained is they needed to get left of boom, left of the explosion, meaning they needed to go, go upstream and, and try to identify how could they work with the uh, Iraqi community, how could they work with the different organizations to identify uh, the more technically skilled individuals that were building these IEDs and in order to disrupt that and, and so that you wouldn't have them. So again, it was as you look at that graph in front of you, it was how do you get upstream to the left there and stop it? How do you stop it from happening to begin with? So left of boom obviously is before something happens and then right of boom is, is what you would do after uh, an event, a, a terrible event. And so really it came from the United States military. And that was so helpful to us to really be able to uh, communicate the 4P model that we use in all of our projects, uh, which are prevention. And if, and if you could just uh, help us kind of understand a little bit more deeply the two different factors of prevention that you're preventing two things, preparedness before something happens, protection at, during the event, and then performance improvement, which many of our team for many years have been focused on that science of performance improvement, but bring it all together for us. Sure, this is very critical. This is a model that we recommend uh, everyone use. So with prevention, you have two types of prevention, primary prevention and then secondary prevention. Primary prevention occurs when an incident or an event does not happen. You've actually prevented it. Secondary prevention is if an incident or an event, a harmful event does occur, uh, our efforts are focused on reducing the overall harm. So we're able to you know, make sure that in, through partnerships, working with the communities, uh, working with the different uh, parties, uh, that we can, we can reduce the residual uh, outcome uh, or the damages that occur. So, you, so you, your secondary prevention is you have, uh, if you have an event, it's, it's going to be less harmful, less damaging. Um, preparedness is, as you said, Dr. Denner, is our state of readiness. And that's how we ensure that we can effectively respond uh, to harmful or damaging events. So, for example, this is what you do to prepare, such as having in, in, in advance of an event, you, you, you establish early warning systems. Uh, you've trained your, your, your people. You do exercises. You have really solid special, uh, uh, operational plans. Uh, all your planning is done. Etc. So that you're very well prepared uh, in the case that you that you that an event might might take place, uh, so that you can respond to it. Uh, protection. The third the third prong is protection. Uh, for us, it's an agile and adaptive model where we leverage people, processes, and technology to best protect the institutions, the patients, 
ourselves and others. And so really protection is, is pulling all that together and having that model. And last is that loop that we're doing that constant performance, performance improvement, looking at it all the time. So if you have a focus on quality assurance and improvement across all service lines, across all events and, 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 and use a data-driven process, you're able to review these events, you're able to take the necessary action to make improvements. Uh, the last thing I will say about the model, the model is not independent. Each of these things do not uh, take place in, in a vacuum. They're all interrelated and interdependent and they feed upon one another. And, it's, and so you really need to have the full model in place and have a, a very solid uh, understanding of how it works. And that is the best way that you're going to be able to, to protect yourself. And that's the best way that you're going to be able to prevent events for your organization. There's no doubt about it. Well, we are so thrilled to have uh, had uh, Chief Adcox uh, speak to us uh, today. Um, uh, and uh, he has really been just a godsend to us in, the, in this area of performance improvement. We're thankful for uh, Randy Steiner for uh, his great protective uh, work that he undertakes for the University of California and for all of our speakers and reactors to uh, the topics that uh, uh, that we have uh, um, have covered. We are very, very grateful uh, for uh, everyone uh, uh, that has joined us today and uh, we look forward to seeing you next uh, next uh, month. Um, what I'm going to do is just ask Jennifer Dingman uh, to close us and then uh, we will wrap up our webinar. That was really a great program today. Thank you to all of our speakers for all of the knowledge and wisdom that you're giving to us. Again, I want to thank all of our participants for being here today and encourage you to please share the recordings with your friends, families, and colleagues. Looking forward to next month, and God bless everyone here. Thank you, Jenny, and thank you. Uh, I know you're on live, uh, uh, and I want to thank you for your just steadfast support. So as we close, we always say <clears throat> that we have to fight the good fight, uh, that we need to finish the race, and that we have to keep the faith. Everyone is a patient, and everyone can be a caregiver. And uh, in this uh, area of public health that's so critical, we're just thankful that all of you attended today, those of you on the podcast and those that are on the extended version that have uh, comments from Dr. Boats, we're grateful for your attendance. And please come back to the website and we'll continue to update um, our resources. And so as uh, I would echo what Jennifer said, God bless you all. And uh, I pray that you share the word with uh, your families and try to protect your youth. And, yeah, thank you so much.